Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 5, The Kings, the human ones. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can find Episode 1 easily at 15minutesontheway.com. Otherwise, brace yourself for a podcast in God's voice telling His side of your story. Well, if you've even been half listening while doing the dishes, or the laundry, or the garden, or your toenails while listening to season five, you know that Saul is well off the way. As a result, he's feeling pretty disconnected right now. It's taken this long for his distance from me to sink in and find its way to his senses. The Philistines are gathering for war again, again, and he doesn't know what to do at this point. He's asked me to give him guidance, like send him another prophet a la Samuel. I haven't. Samuel already told Saul everything he needs to know at this point. He's out. Saul's asked me to show him what to do through his own dreams, or even by lot through the priest's lot-casting Urim, but Saul's come up with bupkis on every front. The poor fellow finally rightly senses he's painted himself into a bit of a corner. He's acknowledged that I've chosen David to be the next king, but instead of stepping down from the throne and handing it over to the one I've chosen to replace him, Saul has held on to the monarchy with an alienating grip. He can feel the crown slipping away and is desperate to know how he can possibly hang on. And once again, this is a habitat in which transfer of power occurs only when the one in power dies. Since there's no one alive who can help him right now in this desperate time, Saul turns to desperate measures and finds a medium. We're in 1 Samuel 28 here. That's right, medium. Not the way to cook a steak, unless it's in front of rare. Outside the kitchen, a medium is someone who serves as an intermediary, an intermediary between the realms of the living and of the dead. I realize that by even including this part of the story in our survey of important moments, we are opening up a can of worms that have played pinochle on countless snouts but this moment with Saul is a convergence of some important themes that we cannot pretend are not there. Neither should you. Where to begin? We could go all the way back, but let's just go back to a detail or two in the law we gave Moses. We very strictly forbid our people from dabbling in the occult practices of some of the nations they're about to come up against. One would think we wouldn't need to command that people not sacrifice their children, but we noticed in Abraham's time some of those deeply misled habitats actually follow that heartbreaking, despicable practice. I command my children to never do so. I also command them to keep clear of what you'd call fortune-telling, witchcraft and sorcery, or anyone who consults or traffics with ghosts, spirits, or the dead. Leviticus 19.31 and Deuteronomy 18.9 and following contain my exact commands, if you're curious. Now, 
Your habitat has conditioned you to roll your eyes at such things as the fictional stuff of horror movies and scary campfire tales. And I'll agree with you that a good lot of what you've seen and consumed is indeed fictional and worthy of eye-rolling. However, to requote my favorite Bill Shakespeare sentence, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 5, Line 167. Hamlet to Horatio in unsurprising reference to the ghost of Hamlet's father. I do not command my children to stay away from the dark arts, to coin a phrase, because they don't exist. Quite the opposite. I seek to protect them from harm at the all-too-real hands of darkness. I give little quarter or narrative to the enemy and his followers across the course of my book because I don't want to give him or them the attention they're seeking. He was a narcissist from the beginning and continues to be so, loving nothing more than seeing his name in print. So I don't go on and on about the great struggle between dark and light and all that, at least not for now. We will process this more when we come across a couple later references in Job and Isaiah. As I mentioned earlier, we are still quite keen on keeping clear the fact that there are no other gods out there, even if the enemy likes to fancy himself as one. This episode with Saul and the medium is one of the only times in this part of the Abra plan that there's any obvious intersection between the two teams, as it were. Here's what happens. Because all occult practice has been outlawed, if you're going to dabble in necromancy, you've got to do it in secret. The penalty for such practices is death. Saul thus goes in disguise at night to the medium whom one of his servants has turned up in the town of Endor. Uh, this was before it became an outer rim planet with an M-class moon inhabited by Ewoks put there by George Lucas or long after that, depending on how literal you want to be about things. Saul tells the medium he needs her to bring up the spirit of a specific dead person so as to get some advice from that person from the other side. The lady understandably hesitates and asks why she should put her life on the line, she knows the law full well, just so this fellow can chat up an old friend. Saul promises her nothing will happen to her if she helps him out and asks her to bring up the spirit of Samuel for him. And she does it. No need to know exactly how, except for this. The how has not come from me. It's come from the enemy. Your enemy. My enemy. There are all kinds of reasons to leave the spirits of the dead at peace. Respect for them. Respect for me, the sacredness of the human soul, and so on. The other side has no such respect, and it is by dark power such things are done. This is how the pagan nations have been able to work such seeming wonders on rare occasion, and this is why I have commanded them to be off-limits for my children, for nothing good can come of even the tiniest investigation of it. The medium conjures Samuel, who, let me tell you, is at having been so disturbed and disrespected, and says as much to Saul. 
Well, Saul whines that he's come to his dead prophet pal for advice, since nobody will tell the king what he should do any more. Not me, not the priests, not any other prophets. Help me, Samuel ben Elkanah, you're my only hope. As long as we're going there. Well, Samuel's answer isn't surprising, nor is it necessary, as he said the same words when he was still alive. Remember when I said that because you didn't obey Yahweh, he was going to take the kingdom from you and give it to David? Well, Yahweh's still going to take the kingdom from you and give it to David. What I can tell you is this. The day has come. The Philistines are going to force the kingdom from your hands tomorrow. Then Yahweh will hand it over to David at the proper time. Your time, however, is up. By this time tomorrow night, we'll be able to chat all you want, Saul, because you and your sons will be over here with me. See you soon, then. And you can almost hear the war drums sounding as Samuel finishes, because the Philistines are gathering all their forces together. David is actually part of the muster at first, keeping true to his word to Achish, the Philistine king, extending sanctuary to David and his men. The other Philistines, however, suspect David and his men are, in essence, hundreds of preset moles who will turn on the Philistines in the midst of battle. What better way for David to get back in Saul's good graces than to trounce us, thought the other four Philistine kings, who sent David packing. Thus, when the day of reckoning comes to Saul via the Philistines, David is removed from the scene and has no hand in the king's demise. Actually, no, the king doesn't wait for the enemy to do him in. Far be it from Saul to fall bravely in courageous battle against Israel's foes. That's how his sons all die that day, including the valiant, noble Jonathan. No, Saul is in retreat when he sees the enemy nearly upon him. He asks his armor-bearer to kill him in order to be spared humiliation at the Philistines' hands. When the armor-bearer won't do the deed, Saul falls on his own sword so that he is in control until the final moment. The second king of Israel is dead. I was the first and am far from dead, but was rejected by my children in favor of a human king, so they could be like the surrounding nations. Saul has failed his people, and he has failed me. As they rejected me and put another on their throne, and as he rejected me soon after taking it, I have rejected Saul, and as all know, I have another king waiting in the wings. At the news of Saul's death, the army of Israel and all the inhabitants of the neighboring towns flee. The Philistines move in. For now. Now, the common question a good number of you have with regard to Saul boils down to fairness. How is it fair for me to put Saul on the throne only to take him off in death in favor of David, about whom we are about to do a bit of cavelling. Well, that's an important question, the fairness one, not the cavelling. 
How can Saul's demise be fair when I'm the one who put him on the throne in the first place? Underlying this question are things like, didn't you know Saul wouldn't do things the way you wanted? And if you knew Saul was going to fail, why didn't you just wait for David to be old enough and then appoint Israel's first king? Or why didn't you do more to get Saul back on track? Etc., etc., etc. Still good, very good question. Again, I'm not really here to defend myself, but this is a good opportunity to look at how I work in and with you guys and gals. Israel wanted a king. Badly. I put them off for a long, long time, and then we decided it was time to say yes to Israel's repeated demands. Now would be a good time for you to watch Bruce Almighty to help think through some of these things. Saul really was the best candidate for the position at the time, and remember that Israel thought we were mighty late in saying yes. You'll recall that this was actually a major compromise on our part to begin with, since I am the only king that Israel will ever need. I did not set Saul up for failure. He did that all by himself. I gave him everything I've given or I am about to give David, the anointing of my spirit, the wisdom and direction of my prophet Samuel. Uh, actually, David will get a shiny new prophet named Nathan, complete with his own new prophet smell. And through my spirit and prophet, I extended my aid in governance. Though he had some wonderful moments, most of which we've mentioned, Saul's fatal flaw was his trusting in himself as his primary compass rather than letting me lead him. This was one of my big reasons for not letting my children have their precious human king, just like their neighbor nations, because a good percentage of the kings to follow in Israel are going to have the same extremely human extremely harmful, flawed moral compass, trusting their own judgment more than mine. Every human king has the same opportunity as all other humans, the choice to listen to me and act on that basis, or to basically ignore me and do things their own way. Not to hit you over the head with it, but you get the same options, friend, even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes. Saul did things halfway a number of times, and in the end, the consequences came around to roost and knock him off the throne. He could have straightened up and flown right after that first episode where we and Samuel made clear to Saul that he wasn't listening to us closely enough, but he didn't. And some of you think I should have just made Saul do the right thing. Then he wouldn't have died in shame. Then a lot of things would have been different then we're not going to go there. We've established that I am not going to make anyone do anything they don't choose to do. That's not the way I work. Sure, I'll be the wind beneath your wings, but you're going to have to open them on your own and surrender to the current of my jet stream, Chinook, or whatever local wind serves as the best metaphor in your precise habitat. The cascade of the fairness question presupposes a very big assumption on your part, that I am making my decisions based on certain knowledge of the future. Hey, Yahweh's outside of time. He knows what Saul's going to do. Why doesn't he fix it before it happens? 
not to get too much further down this rabbit hole, but that kind of working is on the same level of forcing people to do things, as, in the scenario this assumes, I'd be manipulating the choices people have available to them. That's a bit like dropping a poor mouse in a maze wherein his or her choices are dramatically limited, and there is in fact only a single path to success. There's cruelty for you right there, Fran. While I'm obviously working on a large scale with you all, that's one of the things I'm hoping you get out of your time with me here, the day-to-day -day decisions tend to be just that, day-to-day, -day, made with what's going on in the moment. The Abra plan informs those decisions as it works towards saving your hide, but despite the notion popular with many in your habitat, I am not over here engineering every tiny detail of your and everyone else's life. I am also not letting you go into a free-for-all of your own devices either. Yes, it's a mysterious balance, and no, you can't handle the truth. I am using everything that happens once you all make your choices and the requisite consequences start to roll. But I'm giving you the choice that starts the ball rolling, whether you're the king of Israel or the custodian of an underfunded elementary school. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or on Facebook. Then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. You can find a link to our Patreon page there as well. We're sponsored by the Oakhaven Church in the Barn in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Oleksandr Zadoyani writes our theme music at smartmediamusic.com. Kenny Eicher designs our website graphics, kennyeicherart.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.